0: If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder funds (ASX ticker symbols G two hundred and GHHF) offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses. So read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. Betashares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on
1: solely what you hear in this show.
0: Amy Linardi, welcome to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast.
1: Hello, Owen. It's good
0: to be back. It's good to be back recording.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Just in time for, we're going to squeeze some more episodes in for Christmas and then ready to be reinvigorated for January 2024.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty scary when you say 2024. I feel like everything is either before or after COVID for me. Oh,
1: yeah. And I, today, I saw my first um, January auction date going on realestate.com.au. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's keen.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) We're there. It's happened. It's happened. Yeah. Um, But it's good to see some of the Christmas lights already out in the area. I've got a guy up the road from me that always brings out the, the Chrissy lights. I think he's a Sparky, actually, and you get all the cars and all the kids walking down to check it out almost every night from now on. So I once drove
1: down to to try and see the the Christmas lights at the Ivanhoe Boulevard and Mm -hmm. we got there and we waited in line and we got about halfway and it'd been about an hour and I said, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I've, I've got to go to the toilet. I've got to leave. Like I can't be stuck because once you get into the boulevard, you can't get out again. Really? So it's a commitment. Yeah. Okay. Right. I haven't heard
0: of that. I didn't know about this. This is yeah. like a, a treasure. I know there's like certain pockets and streets that have like the, the families that do it every year and have mm-hmm. done it for decades or whatever. It's, it's great to see.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: but today we're talking about selling your home and we get a lot of questions on the podcast about particularly about things like upgrading um, or people just moving uh, effectively and they need to buy or sell first. And we get so many questions about this. It is probably one of the more technical things and the answer is to some questions, quote unquote, it depends. So like it depends on the situation, it depends on the environment, it depends on the asset, like so many things. But we're going to do our best to try and cut through all that. Um, And we're just talking about whether... Someone is upgrading, or whether they're just selling. So we hope this episode is useful for you, no matter what you're trying to do. But if it involves selling in any way, um, we are here to help. So, Amy,
1: and I'm so, and I'm a my job is a I call myself a property advocate, um, Mm -hmm. also known as a buyer's advocate. But I do also help people sell properties. It's not the Mm -hmm. core of my business. I would say it's ninety percent buying and around ten percent helping people sell. So that's what call is called being a a vendor's advocate. So, as a vendor's advocate, I get involved at the very start and help give guidance around, you know, strategy and deciding whether to buy first or sell first, helping choose an agent, appraising the property, getting it ready, all of those things. So, I also do that. So, that's why I, c- I can oh, chat today yeah. about, you know, selling a property because I do do that as part of my business.
0: Oh, right. I did not know this. It's the news yeah. to me. Yeah, hey. yeah, yeah.
1: It's it's not as common but there's definitely, there's some people out there who just do vendor advocacy. That's their exclusive business. Oh,
0: really? Mm. So, in that, let me just ask some questions around that then. This so, is
1: new information to you, isn't yeah, it? this is new
0: information. <laughs> so, does that mean that you would work in tandem with a real estate agent that's employed by the seller?
1: Yeah, that's right. And in most cases, not all, but in most cases, we split the commission with the real estate agent. So, we take a, a portion uh-huh. It's not a huge portion, but a portion from the agent. So, it doesn't actually cost the vendor any more or anything out of pocket. Huh.
0: So, I know we're going to get to the topic at hand, but you're <laughs> you're also qualified as a real estate agent, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Like you got your yes, t- so I've got your my
1: real estate license. Yes.
0: Ah, right. Okay. 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 Um, well, that's really interesting. So, hopefully that um, comes out throughout the conversation. Now- my very simple question to you is, if you are looking to sell a property, just generally speaking, how far in advance should you start to think about it and start to plan? Like, when does that, you know, is it, it can be a liquid asset for some, it can mm-hmm. be hotcakes for others. Like, when do we start to think about that?
1: So, in theory, you can get a property ready to go on the internet for sale in a week. If you really wanted to and if you really had to, you get the photographer in, you get a floor plan done and it it goes online and, you know, you get a contract. Mm -hmm. So that can be done in as short as a week, but it might take you many, many months or even longer to get to that process if you need to put some strategic planning ahead, like in place to then figure out, well, where are we going to go from there? Doing your homework as to what you're going to buy or your next steps, maybe speaking to your accountant or your financial plan or getting your finances sorted. But also you might need more time as well if you need to prepare that property for sale. So doing some renovations, doing some maintenance and in that case, you ideally get a bit of advice from the real estate agent or someone like me, Early upfront to say what do we actually spend money on? What do we mm. what do we want to uh, spend some extra cash on to present this property that's going to give us a return?
0: Mm. And those, I imagine, those could range from like cosmetic to most. I imagine most of them are like kind of cosmetic, mostly style. cosmetic. Yeah. yeah, and then there may be some occasional things where something needs to change to yeah going. maybe
1: fixing like a leaking a leak happening in the roof or something that's going to be really obvious to purchasers when they walk through Yep. um but it's mostly uh things that are going to impact the way that that purchaser feels when they walk through that property you want them to feel like oh yeah i could picture myself living here or buying this as an investment presentation yeah um
0: I always think about it like when we painted our house last summer and at the end of the summer, it looked absolutely amazing. Like we just got Mm. a board house and it looked absolutely to die for. And I thought to myself, if I could be bothered and when we go to sell, I will repaint this house because it makes it look literally a million bucks compared to what it is (laughs) beforehand.
1: And it's funny, some of my clients, their properties look the best that they ever have just before they're going to sell. And they say, damn, I wish I did this sooner, so mm-hmm. I could have enjoyed it.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it's one of those things. But when it's your own, you got to do it every year if you want it to look like that. So that's a, that's a <laughs> lot of work. Um, so one of the things that people particularly struggle with, Amy, is this idea of upgrading. Chris talks about it a lot in terms of the financing approach and getting a mortgage and et cetera. And we kind of opened a can of worms a few weeks ago when we started talking about this a bit more. Um, how does someone decide like obviously it's case by case, but like just generally speaking, how does someone decide if they sell their existing property first or they buy first and then sell?
1: Yes. Yes. It's very, very, very dependent. So, we're going to run through the different options and the pros and cons of both. Um, And this might be if you're upgrading, it might be if you're downgrading, side grading, (laughs) which is essentially just spending the same amount somewhere else, or maybe you're selling an investment property so you can buy a home. Whatever case, first of all, you just might not have a choice. Due to your financial circumstances or whatever it is, you might not have a choice. And your mortgage broker says to you, you have to sell first. You have no no choice. But sometimes you do have a choice. And in which case, you've got to figure out, well, which one's better for me? Because there's pros and cons of both options. Both have risks as well. Mm -hmm. As a very, very, very general rule of thumb, if A market is increasing in value and -hmm. you know that that's what's happening because sometimes it's really clear that that's happening. It is typically better to buy first and then sell. And the reason behind that is then you're just locking in today's price Mm -hmm. and then selling your other property at hopefully a a higher price, but also just gives you more confidence that in a hot or a stronger market, it's just going to be easier to sell. Yeah. That's the general way of thinking of it versus if the market is decreasing, typically better to sell first and then buy. So, it can be a little bit dependent on the market, but I would say overall, it's probably more going to be dependent on your personal situation. Okay. Okay. So, just say, you you know, you're weighing up these pros and cons. Here are some things to consider in the situation where you're buying first. Okay. So, if you buy first, it just means that you've got somewhere to move to, like if you're upgrading or downgrading. So, you've just got less risk of needing temporary accommodation. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe you, um, because if you sold first and you couldn't buy something in time, you might have a gap. Mm. You need to find somewhere to live. And that might be a rental property or it might be an Airbnb or staying with parents. And storage
0: facilities a lot of the time and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's just a bit like more, mostly an inconvenience um, more than anything.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It can be also really, uh, well, much more beneficial to buy first if what you're looking for is quite rare. Mm. And this is where doing your property brief or doing your property homework about what you want to buy is important to do before you, before you do anything Because if you're doing that homework and you realise, oh, what I'm looking for is actually, doesn't come up very often, it might take me a while. Mm. The risk is if you sold, it could take you six months to find what you're looking for and then you're not guaranteed to get it because someone else might want it more. And then you've got another three, four, five months and in the meantime maybe the market has changed and that's a risk.
0: Um. I imagine, do do you find, this is a general rule of thumb, do most people that you work with tend to buy first or sell first?
1: There is no, I'm not going to, I don't even know if it's 50-50, but it's just so case dependent. Yeah, right. So case dependent. But we run through all these pros and cons beforehand because the key thing and what you want to try and achieve regardless is to try and buy and sell in the same market. There's going to be a couple of months gap potentially, but ideally you want to avoid buying and selling with like a year or two gap only because the market can change quite dramatically in that time and it can change sometimes in your favour and sometimes not. For example, Mm. you sell in a soft market and then the market goes up and you need to buy and prices have gone up. Yeah. So another thing you might need to consider, and a lot of people do need to consider if they're buying first, is bridging finance because it can be really hard to align settlements. That is, you know, sell a property and buy a property and have those settlements on the same day. It's the dream, but it it, it can be really hard to do. So, in which case you need to um, figure out, okay, well, what if I I, um, have this gap where I need to have two mortgages? Am I able to do that? So, speaking to your bank or your mortgage broker around if you're able to do that is important because you just don't want to be in a position where you buy first and then you're forced to sell and settle within a certain time frame because you don't have finance in place to cover you after that.
0: Because then you might sell it, if you're in a rush to sell, you might not have time to get your property ready to...
1: Well, you just become a forced seller and you might then only be able to accept, you know, a 30- or a 45-day settlement. It could restrict your buyer pool. and You just kind of have to take any offer that comes through. Mm. just gives you less flexibility around that.
0: Yeah. Would you say if someone does, is anticipating that they might buy first, like if, would you say for them like one way to de-risk that process is to make sure your property is kind of continually in this state where it is quite tidy, you know, Um where just in case you do have to sell a bit quicker than you thought?
1: Yeah, I think you should just get into that mindset anyway, definitely. Yeah, just just to be ready. But you just don't want to be a forced seller and just have a lot of pressure to sell because first of all, it means you might have to take a lower price and it's just going to be really, really stressful for you.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So, that's why sometimes people sell first because they say, oh, it's done. Now, I can just focus on the buying. Um, But if you buy first and need to sell later on well you don't know how much you're necessarily going to sell for and your agent will do an appraisal for you and they'll give you an idea but you won't know that exact price and therefore what it means is in some situations you might end up being more conservative on your purchase price
0: yeah
1: and then if you sell for an awesome price and a better price you're like oh damn I could have spent more on that house um or If you sell for less than what you're expecting, well, what's your game plan there? So when I'm helping clients buy first, we always say, what is worst case scenario if you don't get the price that you want? And how will you deal with that? Mm. Will you have a savings buffer to help you with parents, whatever it is, just in case? You that can, don't have be, that, that can be a
0: lot of money too, right? It can be a lot of money.
1: It can be. It can be. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, especially if you've got a property that's just a little bit harder to appraise, maybe there haven't been many comparable sales mm. um, to be able to give you confidence versus if you're selling a property in an apartment block and there's been 10 sales in the last two months, well, you've got a better idea.
0: Yeah. Um, Chris was saying like, obviously, it depends on the asset you're selling as well, right? Because a super high quality asset asset. you've probably got more confidence and certainty around at least there being some buyer demand for that versus like you said if it's like I don't know maybe it's in an apartment building and there's a few for sale well that's maybe a pretty uncertain thing that you're going into so how about then if you decide that you think selling first is the right thing to do so you do want maybe a bit more certainty of the finances or something like that yeah Um, what are the pros and cons
1: Yeah, so that that key, um, one of the key benefits there is you do have certainty around budget and less pressure that you then have to to go and sell something and just, you know exactly how much you've then got to spend. So, this can also be really beneficial to sell first. If you do have a property which is quirky or unique or it's in an apartment block where there's five others for sale and, you know, maybe there's not as many buyers around, it might take longer to sell. So, in which case, especially if you um, can't get bridging finance, selling first might might be the solution. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. okay. So, yeah okay. yeah.
1: so if you um, it just and it just also eliminates that risk of potentially um,
0: taking longer to sell.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And then also it just means that you don't need to go down that bridging finance path. Yeah. So Which, you know you don't even have to explore it because it can it can be costly. Like bridging finance, it, it can be quite expensive.
0: Yeah, if would it be would it be fair to say then? I'm just weighing up this kind of in my head as like best case, worst case. It would almost seem more conservative to sell first, um, but then you risk the property that you were going to buy getting away from you.
1: Mm, yeah, I do. Yeah, it's it is conservative, but it also gives you just. Uh, for a lot of my clients who sell first, they just want that peace of mind to know that that part of the process is, is done because they find it the more stressful part of the process and the more uncertain part of the process. Mm. Yeah. What
0: about, what about like if, um, like I've heard of this happening before where say, so like a family's living in a house and they want to sell and they want to upgrade, but the new, the person that buys the house is a, an investor. So, they think, well, maybe we can just keep living here or rent it from them. Is is that something that happens often?
1: Yeah. So, there is what's called either rent back agreements or license agreements. Okay. And these can be really powerful to use when you're even like a potentially buying a property and you're buying a property off someone who hasn't yet sold and offering them that to them can be really attractive to that vendor. I've purchased many properties over the years where either my clients were investors or they were home buyers in no rush to move in. We gave the vendors a really super flexible settlement. I've done floating settlements before, which meant I've got a settlement date on a certain date, but at the vendor's discretion, they can bring it forward if they buy sooner. Mm, interesting. A lot of agents I talk to they're like, "Oh, I've never thought to do that before." But I just always think, "What can I make how can I make my offer as appealing as possible, which isn't necessarily revolving around price." Mm. Um, I've also recently helped a vendor sell a property where we negotiated with the purchaser that we'd have the option to either bring settlement forward or stay in that property after settlement on what was called a license agreement just kind of like a rental agreement, but there's no bond. There's no actual lease. It's just a separate legal agreement drawn up by the solicitors. So, for hmm. my clients, that was the ultimate flexibility. The purchase, r- purchases were investors that work for them. So, it can be a win-win. But it's so, this is something that you chat to the real estate agent about as a buyer to see if, you know, the vendor's open to it. But as a sure. vendor, if you're selling a property... It's not something you can rely on. Most, not all purchasers are going to necessarily want to do that. It's more just um, an instance where maybe you the agent says to you, hey, I've got someone off market. I know you're not ready to sell yet, but this is what they're offering. We could do this. Just know that it's an option.
0: Yeah, because I was chatting to a guy over on our Australian Investors podcast the other day, and he said one of his greatest investments ever was he bought a family home in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And... um He actually bought it during COVID and he bought it on an 11-month settlement because there was something to do with he wasn't in a rush to move in and the vendor wasn't in a rush to move out. Mm. But in that time, he worked out that the price of the property obviously during COVID, um, he managed to buy it at a super low level when the owner was distressed but then after, you know, 11 months when they moved in, it had already gone up a couple hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, this is wild. Like I hadn't heard of this happening before but –
1: yeah. Well right. two things I'm going to make a note on that is he got that was quite fortunate yeah. but the opposite can happen in that if that yeah. property goes down in value in 11 months they'll they'll do another valuation closer to settlement and if it's gone down you have to cover that
0: uh, yeah, I've, yeah. Yeah, you got to remain. Yeah, you got to have a deposit in. Fact, yeah, right? Yeah, equity, that's yeah. a risk.
1: And also, your pre-approval is not going to last 11 months. So you're reliant on your mm. financial situation not changing, and that lender's policy not changing. So you've got to do almost another finance, you know, approval closer to that date. So just with long settlements. Yeah, yeah. Keep that in mind. I generally prefer short-term settlements, and then some kind of leaseback. Arrangement, if the client's financial situation, you know, may change.
0: Yeah, so de-risks the financial, but you still have like the the certainty around the living arrangements. Yeah,
1: yeah, and the license agreement, like they will be paying like a weekly rental amount. The yep. vendor pays a weekly, or whoever's living there. We do it sometimes the opposite way in where our purchaser moves in prior to settlement on a license agreement. I've just sold. Oh, yeah one of our townhouse developments in Coburg and our purchaser is probably going to move in before settlement and just pay us a weekly amount. Win-win.
0: That would make sense. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So how about then like people talk about like seasonality in property markets, you know, the structural thematics, but then there's seasonality as well or cyclicality that happens. Yeah. Where a lot of properties might come on the market in say springtime or something like this. Like if you're looking to sell, is that something that you're taking into account?
1: Yeah, so when I first started in property, there was always this, you know, discussion around how winter's a good time to sell because not many other people are on the market and then spring is not as good because there's this misconception that spring's a good time to sell because your garden looks better and especially after the footies finish here in Victoria, people can pay attention (laughs) a little bit more, but then you get an influx of properties and like maybe in the past that was correct, but I've found since COVID there hasn't been any consistency around seasonal supply levels or any kind of like consistent trends enough to say this is the best time of the year to sell. And in which case my advice always is you sell when you're ready to sell in the same way that you buy when you're ready to buy. You can't control the market. You can only control your personal timing.
0: Yeah. Because even if there was like some sort of cyclical element around the the market that you're looking – Interest rates could change. Who knows? Could oh, change so much could type. change. Yeah.
1: Actually, though, I, what I will say to that is, I personally would never sell in December or January.
0: Right, when people, people are not tend to in Norway, people
1: yeah. just tend to check out at this time of the year. Everyone goes on ho- holidays. A lot of people are still on holidays throughout January. So, yeah. in which case, like I just, I find that I tend to pick up what I call the most discounted properties before Christmas. Mm. And then just nothing much happens in January. Um, So yeah, if I said had to choose two months not to sell, it would be then. And then there's certain suburbs where, you know, down here in Bayside where you wouldn't like have an auction over school holidays or have your campaign over school holidays because so many of that demographic go overseas and go away. They're just not around. So your real estate agent will help guide you around that.
0: Um, Speaking of, i like the the real estate agents are always letterbox dropping around our area like i think nowadays it's probably the only thing that other than those scams that say congrats you've won the jackpot uh prize inside or something like that it's really just real estate agents dropping pamphlets in our letterbox (laughs) saying we just sold down the road for this much here's a comparable sales report let us buy your coffee and blah 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 um how do you actually select an agent? Like <laughs> other than looking at the signs and seeing the, the flashy, I guess, shop fronts in your town, mm. how do you select one?
1: So first of all, I think as a general rule of thumb, I'd always prefer a, a local agent rather than someone who's a couple mm, of suburbs definitely. across. And I have, just, I have, for some reason, sometimes I see real estate agents selling properties that are nowhere near
0: yeah, I've seen that where they are.
1: And they just don't have that depth. Of knowledge of the area, they don't have the buyer pool. They don't. They can't cross sell properties, and they just don't have the local connection. So, first of all, a local agent might not. They might, their office might not be in your suburb, but it'll be in that vicinity. Yeah, yep. um, And then I do like the idea of getting referrals. So if I, you know, if you have no idea, but you know someone who's sold recently in the area, a friend or family or whatever, a referral is always great personal experience otherwise you can jump onto websites like um, realestate.com.au click to the agent section and then type in your suburb you can just see who's doing transactions in the area that actually sorts them by top to bottom agents Um, that's not i don't just go to the top person though because if i'm selling an apartment worth six hundred thousand dollars i'm not going to use the real estate agent that's only selling two million dollar homes yeah First of all, they might not want my listing. <laughs> they might, they might yeah. just give it to a junior in their team and, or they might say no or they might. Um, they just It's just not necessarily going to be the right agent and they won't have the right buyers. So just you can then see what they've been selling, see what they've sold, see the results they've gotten. They'll have reviews on there, although I don't necessarily completely go by reviews because for me sometimes reviews is a reflection of how often that agent asks for reviews. <laughs> Some yeah. agents just don't ask. Um, and what I will say is kind of a side note and I hope I don't get in trouble for this but there are some websites out there which I won't name (laughs) but there are some websites out there um, who, you know, will make suggestions around the top agents but they're not completely, um, you know, they don't have all the real estate agents on there because the real estate agents kind of have to pay to be on there and what you'll probably notice is there's no negative reviews of agents on there as well so i Mm. don't think those are completely independent
0: oh it happens on in finance as well the top 100 um financial advisors and that sort of stuff in my side of the world i think it's just completely corrupt just i'll call it what it is i think it's just complete schnozzle (laughs) um yeah you got to make sure you know what you're kind of where you're getting your information from yeah Uh, so like they i i I haven't sold a property myself i mean as you know but um I've been in the room when agents have dropped by and had their routine calls, and they've bidded. Basically, they've pitched fought for the yeah, they've pitched for the sale, right? Yeah, and that's a big part of their job, and um, they all sound charismatic. Although some of them are too charismatic or cheesy or whatever, but um, <laughs> they all sound great. So, how many like should you go with? Like, is there a, like would you get three and see what they say? Uh, trying to identify if one of them says a ridiculous price just to win you over or like, how do you decide?
1: Mm, So I would get no more than three. Okay. I don't think it's necessary to get more than three. That should give you a, unless you you get three and you're like, oh, I don't really like any of these, of course, get another one. If you get three and, you know, you're trying to decide, I think any more than that will create a bit of confusion. And then two is okay as well. Gives Mm. you a point of, you know, benchmarking. I think more than one is important in any kind of service that you're getting out quotes and getting opinions from. And then you can compare their opinions as well because they will probably have varying ideas around price, sometimes different suggestions around timeframes or method of sale, et cetera. The more information the better to a certain extent. But I've had situations before where because I know all of the real estate agents in the areas I work with, sometimes I'll say to the client, I know which agent I'd prefer to use, happy to get more in, but this is the one I'm going to recommend anyway. Totally yep. up to you. Yeah, but cool. as a general rule of thumb, two or three is plenty.
0: Mm-hmm. Because we're going to do another episode around this, like how like real estate agent sales tactics and stuff in the future, which will be fun. <laughs> um, but obviously one of those is like a real estate agent trying to solicit bids that can be like, you know, unrealistic or um, maybe deceptively pricing the um, the property, which is kind of slightly starting to change, I think. But it can happen on, for the seller as well. They can be lulled in and they say, you know, you you think this is a nine hundred thousand dollars house, and they come in and they go, I got to buy. It. I reckon we can get, you know, one point one for this. And you think, well, why the heck wouldn't I go with this person, right? Yeah, so.
1: yeah, that's a really good point. You need to be, you need to have done your own research before you get the agent in. Because there are some situations where they will, what's called, if they call it, you know, buying the listing, which is just basically mm. like telling you a price that is above what they know it's worth, because then, if, you know, it just leads you into this false sense of saying, well, why wouldn't I go with that agent? They're going to get me the most yeah. money. But the, the, the kind of, I'll use the word tactic, which is kind of like quite a negative connotation, but it is in this case is. They sign you up, and then later on they get you down on price. Oh, mm. the buyer feedback's not there, or the market's changed, or whatever, and then they get you down. It's so yeah, they're they're um, being a little bit misleading there. Um, but then on the flip side as well, you might have a real estate agent who is implying, or sometimes outright telling you to underquote that property, deceptively, and you might not. Feel easy about doing that. I've had plenty of clients say to me, I don't didn't want to go with that agent because they were telling me to underquote. So it's Mm. going to be then a combination when you're interviewing those agents. They're either coming to your house or you're going to their office if they've already been through your house. Combination of, you know, their appraisal. I always like an agent to put a bit of research into their appraisal. Sometimes agents will just print out a report. They've ticked a few boxes. There's no analysis behind it. There's no context. I like an agent to say, this is why I think your property is worth this. These are some other properties I've sold or I've seen sold and this was the background of those and, you know, have a bit of a story around it. Um, And then also just their their other general advice about, you know, their team and um, how they operate and their recommendations. But ultimately, it can come down to gut feel and it can, can come down to, would I feel comfortable working with this person for the next month or so? Do I feel like they're being a bit too salesy and therefore like, I don't know if I could trust them. Mm. So it can come down to that as well.
0: Yeah, which is fair. Um, so it's kind of like you got to weigh up these multiple variables. And I guess at the end of the day, what you're basically doing by getting a sample size of three agents is you're kind of being like, based on my like gut feel and what they're telling me, I think I connect most of this one because they seem to be the most genuine and the most... Kind of like, you know, honest in what my realistic value of my property is going to be. Cause it might, it's, I can imagine it's so alluring, particularly for people that are like, maybe the downsizers and like the downgraders mostly. They're the ones that have like got big property values. They're looking for that to sell their property, to put their money into super, to set themselves up on a retirement or something they've got a lot online. So, an extra 50, or 100 grand is an extra year or two of, you know, money in retirement. So, Yeah. So I remember well,
1: once I was speaking to an agent and I was talking to them, like, just curious, you know, what's your sales pitch and stuff? And they're like, I just tell them what they want to hear. I just figure out what they want to hear. And that's what I tell them.
0: We should Sorry. do an episode on just like the greatest sales <laughs> tactics of all
1: time. <laughs> I just remember thinking, oh, okay. Like, if it works for you, like, I guess that's that's how sure, you've gotten your business, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do. But, yeah. um, yeah, but yeah anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, it probably says more about the, the, the agent. Anyway, um, so I've got a few more questions for you. Yes. One is, like, obviously you mentioned earlier on that if you're selling your home, you may want to plan well in advance so you can do things like a bit of landscaping, put some mulch down, fix up the brickwork that might be cracked or, you know, whatever. Um, other than that cost of like, which can be just, you know, you need to get an expert in to help you, guide you on that. But um, other than that cost, what other costs should a seller or a vendor prepare for?
1: Yes. So, you've got the uh, the marketing of that property. So, I'm going to call it marketing slash advertising. And the agents will give you like a schedule when you first meet okay. them, which has all of the different options that you can elect. For example, you know, to go on realestate.com.au and domain, that's the most expensive part of the advertising. They're our lead websites. They cost the most. Then there's a bunch of other little websites, which, Mm -hmm. you know, extra little costs here and there. Um, And then you've got things like brochures and boards and videos and all these extra add-ons, floor plans and everything, which you can then decide what to include. And the agent should guide you um, but, you know, the more expensive the house is, generally the more marketing you're going to do for it and the videos and you're going to go for the more upmarket photography, which is much more expensive. Yeah. So, it can be anything, this this whole marketing and advertising, and by the way, it's postcode specific, real estate, don't today, you and domain, they've got an algorithm where it puts your postcode in oh, and right. you're, if you're selling in Turak. Your advertising for exactly the same online presence and listing in comparison to Springvale in Victoria is going to be a wildly different price. Hmm. Crazy different price for the same thing, essentially.
0: Well, they want to make money from the transaction value. Oh, it's right? just price
1: discrimination because they can do it. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It's just business, right? Anyway, um, and then you've got, so just say, for example, I had a property that we recently sold and I think that I think it was around a million dollars, and would have been around six thousand hmm. dollars that we spent on, on marketing and advertising. Um, but it, it can really, really vary. I've seen anything from three grand through to 20, 30 grand.
0: Wow, that's a big window. I guess the videography wouldn't be cheap. Some of those videos are just insane how they're produced and what goes into creating those as well.
1: Exactly, and then a further cost there, which is also going to be dependent on. The, the level of premiumness or yeah. where you live is going to be the styling. I yeah. always do recommend styling a property if you can. Maybe you've already got lovely, great furniture and you don't need to. Um, or if you're living at that property, you might not be able to style that property and hire furniture because not all companies are happy to give you their furniture if they're st- yeah. you're still living there. But they are just going to be able to present your property in its best light, you know, arrange the furniture the way it needs to be. Obviously, you declutter as much as possible, but again, these costs can range from say three grand all the way through to twenty grand if you're Mm. styling this, you know, big mansion in South Yarra.
0: Is that based on like um, the time that the furniture's in there? Is that like, and obviously the size and the quality of the furniture? But like, does it also give you like a window? Like we say. Four weeks, six weeks for styling?
1: Well, you're generally always going to be quoted for like five or six weeks because you've got the week where you're preparing the property for the marketing and then you've got, say, a three- or four-week auction campaign and then maybe a week afterwards. And then from there you pay by week. But the price is mostly dependent on the quality of that furniture and how much furniture you need. Right, right. Because sometimes, you know, when we've gone with the real budget stylist. Most of that stuff's from IKEA or Kmart or you know mm. wherever. It's nothing wrong with that, but as opposed to the high end styling, if you walked into a high end house and they had those products, it's it's just not going to be right for that type of property. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then, in terms of um, what you actually pay the agent, um, is that based on typically fixed like fixed percentages, or is, and with like a, a kicker for like over reserve and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, it can vary. I generally mostly do a fixed rate, but you can have, say, a lower fixed rate and then incentives. For example, if the agent achieves over a certain amount, they get a higher percentage, for example. So, you can structure it different ways. And again, this is where it comes down to just discussing this with the agent. And the key thing to be aware of here is that commission rates are negotiable. So, quite often an agent will say, this is my commission And then you negotiate from there. And sometimes they actually expect a negotiation. Some agents might say, no, this is my fee. Just this is the minimum I'll do it for. Mm -hmm. And other times they'll be negotiable. And this is where, again, getting two or three people in is good because then you can say, well, so-and-so offered me this amount. Are you able to match that price? You're my preferred agent, but they've offered me a lower amount. Can you match it? The worst they can say is no. But you should always ask. And the rates are going to be very – like we're talking about a percentage commission, by the way, and the rates are so, so dependent on <clears throat> where you live around Australia and the price point that you're selling. The higher the price point, the lower percentage it will be
0: yeah.
1: or it can be because that total amount is more.
0: Yeah, it but should be, yeah.
1: Because if you're selling, a, you should say, a two hundred and fifty dollars or $200,000 property, the percentage is probably going to be higher because – that overall fee is less and the agents are going to have a minimum amount that's going to justify them working on that property for you. Absolutely. So, it could be as a very general rule of thumb here in Victoria, anything between like 1.2, 1.3% up to 2.5% ish. Right. It's a very broad range.
0: Do they also take like a bit above like a certain amount? Like if you receive... Like a certain target, say you you say, well, we think it's going to sell for nine hundred, but if they get a million, then they might get x percent more.
1: You can negotiate whatever you want into, and it needs to be written into that sales authority. You also just remember you also need to clarify whether their commission includes or excludes GST, because uh, yeah. they might say one point five percent, and then you read the <laughs> read the fine print and said plus GST. So that's really important for you to factor in. Yep um but yeah and then some, sometimes i've seen agents who are, have this commission rate that says say it's you know 2% um but up to 2.5% if you're really happy with my service and you get to decide at the end
0: so you're just giving extra 10 give them what grand for whatever reason
1: <laughs> yeah it doesn't end up being that much maybe a couple of extra grand or so but right. some, quite often they they get it because they do a really good job and the agent, the vendor says yeah i'm happy i'm happy to do so so anyway the the whole point is whatever you have agreed to or I've decided, you just need to make sure it's really clearly reflected in your sales authority because that's what you're committing to. Can I ask
0: a question on that sales authority, which is if I say sign up an agent and the sales authority, I sign the sales authority with them, is it typically in that like, uh, say like I'm committing to that agent for six weeks or two months or something Mm -hmm. like that, like something to protect the agent, but also locks me in so that if they don't sell it, I have to wait out that contract before I can appoint another agent. Is that typically how it works?
1: Yep, so there's two different types of authorities. there's well, this is this is the terminology in uh, Victoria anyway, there's exclusive, which mm-hmm. means that you're locked in with that particular agent, and even if another agent goes and sells your property or you you just sell it to to another buyer within that period, they can charge you a commission. Right. Um and then there's what's called a general authority, which means you might have multiple agents working on your property at the same time. I never do that for various reasons and I you know we're, I think we're going to run out of time in this episode anyway, so <laughs> I won't go into it. Um but then there's a general authority and then within those authorities you have what's called a fixed time frame where it's like, you know, I'm with this agent for, you know, a, a certain period of time. And again, make sure that you read it. I've seen agents sometimes kind of sneakily put like six months in there.
0: Mm, no like things. you don't
1: want to be locked into that agent for six months in case they can't sell that property and you want to try something else.
0: Yeah, fair enough. How about then if you want to sell, like you think you just chuck it on domain and, you know, it's a normal sales process versus say doing an auction because you think the market's pretty good to go. It's pretty hot. There's some buyers. The agent seems pretty positive. Um, how do you, Factor that in, I guess, like whether to do auction or private sale or whatever.
1: Yep. So, this is where the agent's going to be able to provide you advice around, this is for your type of property and for the current market, I recommend this method of sale for these reasons. Mm. You always want to ask for justification why they're recommending it. There are certain properties that just make more sense to an auction. They're going to, just remember, for an auction, you need competition, Versus if you've, you're in a market like out in the country where they don't do auctions, of course you're not going to do an auction. Yeah. Or if it's a property where it's, you know, maybe buyers are going to find it a bit harder to finance, like it's a small studio apartment or something else, private sale would make more sense to give buyers an opportunity to be subject to finance. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Um, okay, so the final thing is like, this is a huge transaction in people's lives and you're, you're sitting there, you've had you you've had people come through, like agents come through and have said this, this, and this. How do you actually know like the price that it's kind of going to sell for, like get it in the ballpark? Like how, how do you actually determine what it's worth? Because that can also determine whether indeed you do decide to sell.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And it's kind of like what we do when we're buying a property, right? We do our own comparable sales analysis. But in this instance, we've also got a professional real estate agent who should be guiding us too. But in my opinion, in anything in life, you should always do your own research as well and not just blindly rely on what someone else yeah. is saying. So, Especially for Yeah. So, looking at properties that have sold and comparing it to your own property and not making the mistake, which a lot of people do, and thinking their property is just better than everyone else's. And I see this all the time. I say, no, well, your, yours is exactly the same as that other one that sold. And they say, well, mine had a... You know, a, an extra green, beautiful painted wall, and I had some extra landscaping. I'm like, but it's the same product. Yeah. So you just need to be um, critical with the comparable sales and then make sure the agent is justifying their logic. And then from there, you know, it's really going to come down to how motivated you are to sell. If you are not motivated in any way, you might then aim for a stronger price, noting that with that, Comes potentially a longer time frame to sell Mm. versus if you've already bought and you have to sell or for whatever other reason you, you just want to get it sold you're going to be more conservative with your price range because if you price it too high you're relying on a bit of luck yeah you just need to always remember that
0: and it can also decay right like I feel like if you put set it too high and you've got the buyers there, they're looking online, you know, they're ready to go to inspections that weekend. They're like not even looking in that price range and then you might miss those buyers, right?
1: You can miss those buyers. You can end up on like page 10 of realestate.com.au when you finally drop the price, mm. maybe you have to relist that listing and you've lost those original buyers. So there's a lot of risk around that. Um, by and And buyers in softer markets are more price sensitive. So if you mm. price it wrong, especially if you're going to auction... If you overprice it and you drop it down later on, it could be too late. Yeah.
0: Well, Amy, we've gone through a lot in <laughs> um, you know, a pretty short period of time, to be honest. Between buying first, selling first, doesn't matter what kind of selling you're doing. All of this information is relevant. I learned that there's a vendor advocate. That's something mm-hmm. that that's news to me, and I didn't know that you were one of those. But it makes sense given your real estate ticket. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you, there is a link in. Uh, the show notes in the podcast player on YouTube in the description. Um, They can also head to your website. They can get in contact with you or give your team a call. Um, There is also for buyers, property buyers, obviously we're talking about selling today, but Amy is a genius when it comes to buying and you don't have to be in Victoria where she is to get her checklist. The checklist is available in the show notes. It's a 100-point checklist. Go and check it out. It's a free resource. So, Amy, this has been heaps of fun. Thanks for taking some time to catch up and join me on the Australian Property Podcast.
1: Very welcome, Owen. And I hope when the time comes to sell your property and upgrade uh, in the future that this has <laughs> <it's> been helpful. <laughs> oh, it definitely has.
0: I, I now realize all these different things that I should do. Um, so, I really do appreciate I think a lot of folks will find this valuable. So, thanks again.
1: Thanks, Owen.